Before we begin this episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, we would like to express our deepest condolences to everyone who has been affected by the earthquake and tsunami that have hit Sulawesi in Indonesia. The effects have devastated the coastal areas. As of the time of recording, the death toll has surged to over 800 people, with thousands more displaced. If you'd like to donate to disaster relief agencies working to help those affected, we've provided links in the show notes and on the New Narrative website. From myself and all the members of the New Narrative team, our thoughts are with everyone in Indonesia at this tragic time. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we meet the wife of a community worker from Laos who disappeared without a trace in 2012. We look at the evolution of architecture and urbanization in Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh. We interview a human rights lawyer about the prospect of Malaysia legalizing medical marijuana. And our consulting editor for North Sumatra takes a look at violence in Indonesia's football scene. Six years ago, Lao community development worker Sombath Somphone disappeared from the streets of Vientiane. His wife, Ng Shui Meng, has been left without answers. Despite her best efforts, she has encountered a wall of silence from both the authorities and the Lao public. Adam Bema speaks to Shui Meng about her ongoing struggle to find out what happened to her husband. On December 15, 2012, Sombat Sompon's car was stopped at a police post in Laos's capital, Vientiane. He exited his vehicle and was loaded into a white truck, which drove away moments later. No one has seen nor heard from Sombat since. It's hard to imagine someone going missing without a trace, especially when there's CCTV video evidence. The video is even on YouTube. I still have no uh, information whatsoever as to his whereabouts and the authorities uh, haven't given me anything to follow on any of his case. This is Shui Meng, Sombat's wife. She's 72 years old. For the last six years, Shui Meng has committed her life to raising awareness about Sombat's disappearance. The video actually, the video footages are actually from the police own traffic camera that caught the uh, abduction in front of a police post. Uh, the, the people who stopped Sombat are wearing police uniform. Now whether they are real police or people dressed like police is immaterial. There's enough evidence that uh, if the state wants to find him, if the state wants to identify who the perpetrators are, uh, it should be quite easy. Sombat Sompon was not involved in politics. He founded a Lao civil society organization called the Participatory Development Training Center. Through it, Sombat taught sustainable farming practices. Shui Meng said in Sombat's 30-year-long career, he never once veered toward political activism. I also try to meet as many government leaders I have access to or allow me to meet. 
I have written many letters to the Lao authorities uh, asking where Sombat was and also to please uh, find him. Uh, he is basically a good citizen. He has no desire to oppose the government. They say that, well, you know, the government will investigate. Uh, I also had a chance through the um, support by some of the embassies to meet the, the police chief who is responsible for the case. And he too said they would investigate. But that's the end of the story. And they're six years down the road. And they still say that they are still investigating and, and they have found nothing. I find this a little bit unusual for Laos because Laos is very small uh, and people know things. It's very difficult to keep a secret. The UN has raised the disappearance of Sombat on numerous occasions. Last July, the Lao delegation reported to the UN Human Rights Committee for its implementation of the International Convent on Civil and Political Rights. The Lao delegation in Geneva stated that it will take more time to investigate Sombat's disappearance but it completely rejected offers of assistance. August 30th marked International Day of the Disappeared. Shuiming attended the event and mentioned the lack of media attention on forced disappearances. Inside Laos, people may be afraid to mention Sombat's name, but nobody doubts his impact on sustainable agriculture. In 2005, Sombat received the Raymond Magsaysay Award, referred to as Asia's Nobel Prize. Over the years, he has um built up a, a, quite a bit of reputation you know, for his work, so he's pretty well known. So when he disappeared, there was an outcry. An outcry first from the um, people who knew him, uh, ambassadors, um, people in the development community, and everyone was shocked. Everyone was shocked that he was disappeared and the way he was abducted. So there were a lot of letters, a lot of direct appeals to the government, to the ministers of uh, foreign affairs, to various government uh, departments within Laos. Shui Meng said Sombat's work continues through his organization, even though he's no longer at the helm. Handbooks he wrote and published on sustainability in the Lao language are still being used throughout the country. Sombat has always been involved with rural communities, um, basically engaging them to find ways to improve their livelihoods, drawing upon local wisdom, local knowledge and local practices, and also using the local practice with some new ideas, new technologies, uh, so that uh, people's livelihoods can be improved. He also tried to work with young people uh, you know, giving them uh, some skills and knowledge, but basically encouraging them to um, use their knowledge in a way they can to improve their own families and communities. Shui Meng hangs on to the hope that one day Sombat will return to her. Until that day, she continues to seek justice and for any news about her disappeared husband, Sombat Sompon. In this case, it's almost like a wall has fallen down and sealed completely any information related to Sombat and many people who work in government they won't say a thing. So it's a wall of silence? 
yes, it's a complete wall of silence, and which is one of the most difficult thing to deal with. It's a very frightening thought that someone can just be taken off the streets at a moment's notice, disappeared for six years and counting. I mean, how does that make you and your family feel that you know there's no justice? You haven't received any knowledge that he is even alive. I mean, how does that make your family feel? It's a very painful thing. It does the pain and the, the sadness doesn't go away. It lives with, with me every day. Every day I have to face the fact that Sambat is not with me. I have to face the fact that he may not come back. Uh, what keeps me going is, as his wife, it is, I see it as my duty, uh, an expression of my love, and my loyalty to him, I would do the same even up to my last breath. That report was brought to you by Adam Bema in Vientiane. With large amounts of foreign direct investment pouring in, development and construction in the Cambodian capital of Phnom Penh has grown by leaps and bounds. Many consider this sprouting of skyscrapers to be signs of growth and progress. But others say the capital city risks losing its identity if construction continues without a unified plan or thought for a modern Cambodian aesthetic. Mark Tilly talks to local architects and entrepreneurs to find out what they think about their booming city. On any given morning in Phnom Penh, you'll more than likely wake up to the sound of construction. The city is experiencing an unprecedented level of development and construction work, fueled largely by direct foreign investment from countries like Japan, Korea, and most prominently, China. This year, the number of condominiums in the city is expected to double to more than 20,000 units, with overall direct foreign investment in Cambodia reaching a staggering $6.3 billion in 2017. Amidst the size of skyscrapers rapidly rising, towering over what once was a low-rise capital, local designers and planners have mixed views over how the city is being shaped, as urban planning, population movement and infrastructure is overlooked. I do not really like how it looks like right now. The planning is chaotic, it's a big mess everywhere. I would prefer less high-rise buildings. Lekin Asita, a Cambodian architect, works for T3 Architects, a Vietnamese-French firm in Phnom Penh which is designing a bioclimatic building for the Senate of Cambodia. Graduating from the Moscow Institute of Architecture in 2010, Sita said her time studying abroad allowed her to gain a more international perspective on how a city can develop and maintain its identity. She says Cambodian architects have successfully done this in the past. Van Molivan is uh, the perfect example because he's able to bring his own contemporary style. It's still very modern right now. He was able to create something unique for Cambodians. You can see it, but here right now I, I haven't seen anyone who's like this. Van Molivan was a prominent Cambodian architect and city planner in the 1950s and 60s, when Phnom Penh was known as the Pearl of Southeast Asia, thanks to his master plan of the city. His new Khmer style of architecture was unique to his country and culture. 
His work, including the Olympic Stadium, is celebrated and studied by many Cambodian architects today, although many have now been torn down to make way for new structures. Yeah, obviously. Like around the National Olympic Stadium, the sport complex. Now it's covered by the high building and new construction. It's 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 it opposite of what the one only one design for the city. That's Satya Om from Asma Architects, a firm that specializes in renovating and restoring buildings rather than demolishing them. Om believes that the young age of Cambodian architects means they are often overlooked by their international counterparts, and the huge sums of money being handed over to the government means it's the foreign developers who benefit the most. It because of uh, maybe they think it we are not get much experience about it, or maybe we are too young. Maybe they would choose uh, uh, many modern uh, thinking about the beauty of the city or maybe they sing a different way from us. However, Sita remains optimistic. There's a new wave of young Cambodian architects graduating from Cambodian universities and they can gain valuable experiences working with international developers. I've seen uh, many people who have been working in international companies and then they uh, joined like the local company and they uh, try to keep up in the same standards right. so um, the international companies they actually play a big part of that as well like but teaching us it's not just the architects that are concerned about the flood of development entrepreneurs are also concerned Zoyton is the co-creator of Raintree Development, a retail and office space in Phnom Penh's central business district. The group has received global attention due to its building's modern design and attention to detail. The space was designed by Zoe's business partner and local architect, Hock Keng. It is difficult because, again, we are a very, very young economy um, that has, frankly, limited capacity as far as urban planning and city planning goes. Um, we do not have a ginormous talent pool of urban planners and developers who have either studied that practice academically or professionally who are in this country. Raintree is hosting a forum, Cities of the Future, to invite architects, industry practitioners and the public to start conversations on how the city's issues can be addressed. I think we all recognise that urban planning needs to be strengthened. Um, it is a difficult task given existing development, but it's one that I think we have to take seriously if, um, you know, if the city is going to be frankly livable and, and yield the quality of life that we want. Both Setar and Om are quietly confident the new generation of emerging architects will help deliver the quality of life Phnom Penh residents want. Maybe in uh, t t five years' time, someone will we will have uh, more of ideas, like uh, different ideas that we can um, show everyone that uh, we have our own identity, like own uh, architectural sky, other than just some Wat or pagoda or anything. <laughs> in the future, I hope people will try to find solution and make it more better than now. Or maybe now we are we made something wrong. But later, five years or ten years, maybe we, we know, oh, we did, we did something wrong, we should change, or maybe we should update, we should uh, correct what we have done before. So maybe, I think for the future, it would be uh, maybe much better. It, it takes time.
That report was brought to you by Mark Tilly in Phnom Penh. From the death penalty to horrific extrajudicial killings, Southeast Asia is known for its harsh stance on drug offences. But changes might be afoot. After an outcry over the sentencing of a Malaysia man to death for possessing and distributing medical cannabis oil, the Malaysian government has tentatively begun talking about legalising medical marijuana. If this does happen, it'll make Malaysia the first country in Southeast Asia to legalise marijuana. Callum Stewart spoke over the phone with Edmund Bond, a human rights lawyer and Malaysia's representative to the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, about the likelihood of legalisation and what it means for Southeast Asia's position on drugs. Edmund, thank you for joining me today and talking to me about this. Hi, how are you, Callum? You're welcome. So this interview is about the possibility of Malaysia uh, legalizing medical marijuana. Now, this has made quite a few headlines recently, but would you say that this is a serious possibility of happening in Malaysia? Uh, This is a possibility. It's not a serious possibility because uh, it has come up uh, on an ad hoc basis in the sense that there have been two cases that have been highlighted in the media. I think what's more important is to backtrack on some of um, the promises that were made by the new administration. And one of the promises, if we look at the manifesto, was to review the mandatory death penalty in cases, especially in uh, drug trafficking cases. That has not been implemented yet, although the government has got a study from the Attorney General's chambers to say that that should be repealed in stages. So we have not seen that first stage being implemented yet and we are hoping that that can be done as soon as possible first Mm -hmm. and then to look at a review of all cases involving death penalty such as kidnapping and murder and then I think probably to remove and this is where the medical issues come in on cannabis Mm -hmm. to remove for certain purposes the use of certain drugs uh, uh, from the schedule as dangerous drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, to give a bit of a broader context, um, obviously Southeast Asia is not, or countries in Southeast Asia are known for their their very harsh laws and policies on uh, on drugs and drug trafficking. Um, could you talk a bit about the drug enforcement practices in Southeast Asia and how Malaysia compares to other countries in the region? No court of law and no enforcement agency is perfect. What a lot of drug offenders are facing, especially those from the poor, poorer backgrounds, is that they're facing a presumption of trafficking. For so long as you are found to have been carrying a certain weight of drugs, you are presumed to have been trafficking it. And then in a system uh, like Singapore and Malaysia, we have advanced court systems uh, in, in Southeast Asia, but yet you are facing a disproportionately difficult task of trying to disprove the presumption of trafficking. Mm-hmm. So not only you have laws that are against you, but you have um, drug enforcement officers in, in around the region that may not be as professional or may not be as efficient in, in trying to do their jobs. It's easier to convict someone than to actually have someone uh, acquitted. So around the region, although we have some advanced systems of law, there's no system that's perfect. That's why I think there has been greater advocacy in trying to 
remove the death penalty and try and remove these presumptions from from our laws. To go a bit deeper into that, why do you think that there is such a uh, a prominent and widespread uh, you know attitude of harsh harsh penalties for drugs in Southeast Asia? The traditional and conservative view is that with the death penalty looming over the people, that it reduces incidences of drug trafficking and drug possession. Mm-hmm. But I think over the many years, that's not true. So scientifically and medically, it's not true. But also public education and information is, is spread by governments around the region saying that it works. And so from young, we are taught to buy into that kind of attitude and that kind of uh, disinformation. Malaysia, a, f- a few years ago, did a very comprehensive and robust survey. And we asked um, the people uh, in the survey, would you actually support um, the death penalty for drug trafficking offences? And when you come down to the nuts and bolts of it, the survey found that there would be people who are uh, who would not support the death penalty. Still, though, Malaysia seems like a very odd place uh, for even the prospect of uh, legalizing medical marijuana to be mentioned. Um, why is this being floated as a as a potential possibility in Malaysia? One scale is we have politicians now actually in Malaysia for the first time saying, "Hey." Hanging someone for just possessing or, or trafficking in some drugs, uh, who has and they have good reason for it, is quite harsh, unfair. And I think some of these politicians start to realize that when you are in front in prison and seeing someone being hanged is not a, a, a such a good thing after all. So I think they are reviewing that, that kind of policy. It's it's a harsh punishment. It's inhumane. So we have that on one spectrum, and then we have the other spectrum where we have mitigating circumstances. So we have the media properly highlighting the cases of uh, two now accused persons saying, I'm only using this to help people uh, with some medical conditions. So you have these two um, uh, scales of, of, of the case and, and people are looking and seeing that perhaps this is something that we need to reconsider. But I don't think uh, there, there will be a blanket authorization at the moment in Malaysia for 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 that kind of legalization as in in America, but a proper review by, with the Ministry of Health, looking at the benefits of some of these uh, drugs. Okay, um, now we're talking about politics. Now, obviously. Uh, with the new government, with Pakatan Harapan in power, then some people would say that even the even the prospect of medical, medical marijuana being legalised uh, shows how much things have changed in Malaysia with the new government. Uh, do you think that there is any truth to this? Oh, yes. I think the good thing about the new administration is that they have a Buku Harapan, a book of hope in the manifesto, um, and there's a long list of stuff there that they've promised and we are holding the new administration very strongly to a lot of these promises the next question really now is do we how do we get the civil servants to move in the same direction and a lot of these promises that have been set out by the political leaders are now being reviewed and now being pushed uh, by civil servants and that requires a lot of 
will within the government administration, not just at the political leadership. So if your question is whether there should be hope and we should give them time to continue to implement some of these promises, then the answer is yes. It's now how civil society, how people in government, how people outside government will assist the new administration to realise some of these promises. And I suppose, do you have anything else you would like to add? Um, I think the the advocacy against the mandatory death penalty, in fact, the death penalty as a whole in the region uh, is gaining momentum. I think it needs to continue and around the country, I think governments will start to see that the mandatory death penalty or the death penalty in the region does not do much benefit uh, for Southeast Asia. Okay. Edmund, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, Caleb. Take care. That was Callum Stewart speaking with Edmund Bond, Malaysia's representative to the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights. Last week, a football game in Bandung turned deadly after a fan was bludgeoned to death by supporters of the rival team. It was unfortunately not the first time Indonesian football matches have ended in tragedy and Haringa Cyrilia's death has rekindled discussions of Indonesia's violent football culture. Efforts to seek justice and reform have so far yielded little result. Aisha Llewellyn, our consulting editor for North Sumatra, says this is no surprise and points to systemic flaws and conflicts of interest that prevent meaningful change. On Sunday, the 23rd of September, 2018, Haringa Sirulia walked into the main stadium of the city of Bandung in Indonesia to watch a football match. An avid Persija Jakarta fan, photos on social media show Haringa smiling and holding a club shirt. Just a few hours later, after the final whistle had blown and the stadium had cleared, Haringa was dead. He had been beaten to death by fans of rival team Persib Bandung, brandishing iron bars and planks of wood. Haringa was just 23 years old. A video of the vicious beating went viral online and showed Haringa being set upon and bludgeoned. You can see him wrap his hands around his head, trying to shield himself from the blows. Not one person in the sizable crowd, many of whom are recording the incident and encouraging the attackers, steps in to help him. Sadly, Haringa's death is not an uncommon occurrence in Indonesia, which has some of the worst football-related violence in Southeast Asia. Violent clashes between rival football fans happen often, and many end in tragedy. According to Indonesian analyst Marhali, Haringa was the 70th Indonesian football fan to die in match-related violence since 1994, and the 16th football fan to die in Indonesia in the last eight months. Despite the frequency of attacks at Indonesian football matches, the penalties are usually light. There can be brief punishments, such as clubs being banned from playing for short intervals, and match supporters can be fined for things like setting off flares or throwing rocks. Official investigations into attacks often go nowhere. And whatever the penalties, they clearly aren't working when you look at the statistics. 
16 people were arrested following the attack on Haringa, and all eyes quickly turned to those in charge. The Football Association of Indonesia, known as PSSI, is headed by Edi Ramayadi. In July 2018, Edi was elected governor of North Sumatra, Indonesia's fourth most populous province. He claimed it was the responsibility of the hosting club to ensure security, and that no one could have predicted such an outburst of violence. It's a baffling response when you consider that the players of the clubs in question have to be driven to games in armoured vehicles to protect them from attacks by rival fans. Violence is often not only predicted, but practically expected. Now in damage control mode, following a growing public outcry over Haringa's death, Eddie went on local TV show Mata Najwa. I'm the one who has sinned, he said. This is my responsibility as the head of PSSI. But lip service isn't enough. A local online media site showed that Eddie owns a 51% stake in a company linked to Persatuan's Pakbola Medan dan Sikitarnya, or PSMS Medan, a local football club in the capital city of North Sumatra. A number of other senior figures at PSSI also have links to local Indonesian football teams. While Eddie continues to insist that there isn't any conflict of interest, the problem is obvious. If key figures from PSSI, including Eddie, have financial ties to Indonesian football clubs, then it's clearly not in their interest to impose penalties, such as match suspensions, on these clubs when their fans break the rules. Nielsen Sports has this data on football in Indonesia. It's the fourth biggest country in the world in terms of population, but has the second highest rate of global interest in football, with 77% of people following the sport. Football means money in Indonesia, and it's those in power who seek to gain the most. All Haringa wanted was to enjoy a good game when he went to the stadium that day. But when powerful people have financial and other interests in Indonesian football clubs, it's the well-being of fans like Haringa that they're playing with. That was brought to you by Aisha Llewellyn in Medan. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Adam Bemmer, Mark Tilly, Edmund Bond, Callum Stewart and Aisha Llewellyn for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week for our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. Check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa. Thank you.